What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we continue our summer series on Moses. We've watched Moses' unlikely birth, his acceptance among a new group of people despite committing murder, and the moment his whole life changed course as he heard the voice of God as he witnessed a burning bush. Then last week we heard how Moses bravely returned to Egypt to demand that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, let Israel go. The final straw was the Passover, a meal celebrating God's protection. We learn God calls us all uh, not to judgment, but to protect the innocent and to put our trust in Jesus. After the final plague, Pharaoh has finally relented, allowing the Israelites to leave their captivity in Egypt. We are going to hear about their escape as told in the book of Exodus, and reading for us today is Mary Ann. Uh, there are some important details we'll go over later leading up to this moment, but for now you need to know that during the day there is a cloud in the shape of a pillar that is leading the way out of Egypt. At nighttime it changes to a pillar of fire that let, uh, leads the way. After Israel left their captors, Pharaoh changes his mind about letting them leave and chases after the people with an army and over 600 chariots. The problem is Israel is trapped between the Egyptian army in front of them and the Red Sea behind them. How will Israel manage this impossible situation? Let's hear now from Exodus 14, verses 10 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For would it have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward but you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go out into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. 
the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and the chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. And from Hebrews 11.29, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Equip us, Lord, to understand your word and share your good news with the world. Build in us compassion and grace to follow your path and do your will. In Christ we pray. Amen. Robert Frost famously wrote in his poem, The Road Not Taken, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. It's become something of a trope, but there's much wisdom in taking the less obvious path. I've always been something of a road less traveled guy myself. Uh, I'm not all that interested in doing things just like everyone else. I prefer to keep things interesting and see what's down that less traveled path, sometimes in figurative ways, but often in very literal ways. If there are two paths on a hiking trail, you can bet I took the one that nobody else is on. Sometimes the less traveled path, why our family thought that was ridiculous. Uh, it meant as a pastor, I would always be working on my anniversary. Uh, but then we uh, told them how beautifully decorated the church was for all of zero dollars for us, uh, how we got the banquet hall at half price and an open bar for an additional one dollar per person. And suddenly people started seeing things our way. That was pretty nice. And, and we thought it didn't hurt one bit that the extended family would be gathered together for Christmas for the first time in years. And then we said the real reason we got married on such an inconvenient date, and that was to honor the passing of Emily's grandmother, who was married to her husband, David, on what date? You guessed it, December 24th. There were too many good reasons to do things differently from everyone else, and that has worked out just fine for us. Now, it was a pretty big risk. Winter storms are an absolute possibility, even in South Jersey, where we were married. And we had a huge snowstorm the day before the wedding with several inches on the ground uh, the day of. It could have been a huge disaster. 
But I say, who needs a summer wedding in the heat when you can have pictures of your bride wearing winter snow boots? Am I making it a little too obvious that I'm from Buffalo, New York here? But I say, no risk, no reward. If you do things like everyone else, you'll get the same result as everyone else. You'll never stand out. You'll never be proud of your accomplishments. And I dare say you'll never realize who God intended you to be. Every step we take is an opportunity to be who God made us to be. If you don't, you'll simply blend in with the herd, ignoring the unique gifts and talents God has placed especially in you. Now, that might just be me talking, but I think we can find in the story of Moses an encouragement to do exactly this, to be unique, to take the less traveled path. It starts just a a bit before the scripture we read today. In in Exodus 12 and 13, Israel has just finished celebrating the Passover meal, and Pharaoh has sent Israel out of his land. The angel of death, or what the Bible actually calls the destroyer, has killed the firstborn of Pharaoh and others, so Israel is released and travels in what seems like the wrong direction. Exodus 13, 17 and 18 says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, for God thought if the people faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Why is God leading them to the Red Sea? There is No way to get from Egypt to Israel across the Red Sea. This is not only the less traveled path, this is madness. It is an impossible path. A few verses later, the story acknowledges this. Exodus 14.3, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. But all of this is part of a larger plan of God at work. The impending attack from the Pharaoh is meant to reveal the glory of the Lord. God is powerful enough to free these people even from the teeth of what was then the world's greatest army. So as Israel takes the less traveled path, a path that eventually leads to them being trapped between an army and the Red Sea, they are terrified. And they immediately turn tell you, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. Now, don't miss this. The Israelites would have rather stayed in slavery than face the challenges of the less traveled path. They would have preferred captivity over the freedom to be who God made them to be. You've done this before. You've felt this tension. Every time there's a challenge in front of you and you say, do I have to? It's easier to ignore the challenge. It's easier to bury your head in the sand and do things the same old way, whether it gets you where God wants you to go or not. God even gives the Israelites a guide. There is a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. It is marking the path for them. But still, they say they'd rather die conveniently as slaves. 
And the scriptures don't say it outright. It almost looks like the story skirts around this a little bit. Uh, but Moses has some kind of response to God after the people complain. What Moses says to Israel is super positive. You'll see God deliver you today. But I wonder if there was some kind of private doubt. Maybe Moses was feeling like he led the people astray, like it was his fault. They were stuck with this army barreling down and, and nowhere to go. I wonder this because here's God's response to Moses after his encouraging words to Israel. Why do you, Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And then God says to stretch out his hands so the sea is divided and they can walk across dry land. If Moses had any doubt before, do what? Make the sea disappear so we can walk across it? Uh, no thanks is the only reasonable response. It sounds impossible, doesn't it? Yet we hear how Israel crossed and the Egyptians pursued them and were drowned as the water returned. What do you do with a story like that? Do we take this at face value that this impossible thing happened? Do we rejected as a, a just a strange story i'd like to pause here in our journey with moses to walk us through it what do we think about a story like this what do we do with this some take it at face value some read this straight as it comes from the bible this is called a literal interpretation the bible says god spoke and told israel where to camp and some say that's exactly how it happened god said i will harden pharaoh's heart and that's how it went exodus 14 27 says god tossed the egyptians into the sea and there is no question in this perspective god did that of course pausing to think about it leads to all kinds of questions why would god purposefully lead israel into a dead end why would god harden Pharaoh's heart when he could just change his mind. God would be setting it up so that there is no solution except the death of thousands of soldiers. That doesn't make sense. Why would God intentionally kill people? Doesn't that make God monstrously evil? Now, some say when God does a miracle, all human logic goes out the window. And there's a verse a lot of people will quote here uh, from the scriptures. It's from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The message is, just trust God. You are human, so you can't understand how God works. So when you don't get it, just believe, just have faith. Uh, forgive me if this sounds like doubt, but I trust God. I believe it's people that I'm concerned with. When we don't understand, it's not usually God we have a problem with. It's how people interpret what someone says God is doing that I personally struggle with. There was a man traveling across the country to drop a car off uh, for his son, and he stopped along the way in the Deep South. He wanted to buy an anniversary gift for his wife, so he stopped at a home that had a handmade sign that said, Quilts for Sale. Uh, inside, a woman greeted him that showed him several quilts. When she went to get more, the man noticed the quilter's husband in the room reading a religious magazine. He asked if the man was a believer, and he said, Well, sure. 
There were books around the room from all kinds of backgrounds, Jehovah's Witness, Scientology, Mormonism, Evangelicalism. It was all over the place. And when he pointed this out to the man, he said, I find that there's good in all of it. As the wife returned with more quilts, she pulled one out that was very eclectic. It had bits and pieces from all over, much of it in clashing colors. He thought it was a truly ugly quilt, and he described in more detail what he was looking for, and eventually he found it and purchased it. But as he left, he couldn't help but think that the man's theology was perhaps like that quilt all over the place. Is that really what God desires? Are parables and poems and ancient histories all meant to be taken literally in a way that makes God look really bad? Doesn't a bizarre patchwork of beliefs that don't really go together fail to reflect the beauty and majesty of God? Understanding what happened at the Red Sea. One comes from Carl Drews. His idea was featured in the Washington Post years ago. Uh, Carl is a software engineer that did research in atmospheric and ocean sciences. He starts with the location of this miracle. He says the Hebrew word is actually sea of reeds, not the Red Sea, and that we don't quite know where that is. Uh, his best guess is by the Lake of Tanis, where there is a narrow strip of water from Egypt to Saudi Arabia. The water was a shallow, brackish lagoon where lots of reeds would grow, sea of reeds, right? Uh, but how do you part those waters? How do you manage to get a miraculous crossing in a place like that? Well, lots of coasts get something called wind set down, where 60 mile an hour winds push the coastal water into one location, causing a storm surge. It's how harbors can temporarily be windblown and completely dry. Uh, there's a video up here that shows what it could look like. So that's one possibility with the, the wind blowing across and pushing the water out of the way. And maybe this is uh, science at work, and Israel was in the right place at the right time. Moses raises his hands as a heavy wind blows and a muddy lagoon bottom wouldn't stop Israel walking, but it would certainly stop all those chariots in their tracks. When the wind died down, they were stuck in the water, and that was that. It was a miracle that just as Israel needed help, that's when the wind blew. Nature just happened to deliver exactly what they needed. I imagine this is possible, but as much as I think of myself as a person of science, I don't know if this is the best way to understand the story either. For me, this also fails to reveal God in God's fullness. Let me offer up one other possibility. I'm always open to these other interpretations that natural science or the miraculous power of God were on display and recorded in these biblical stories. But it also wouldn't destroy my faith if these things didn't happen the way I imagined them in my head. As I study this story and others in the Bible, there are parts that can be confusing and maybe even make God look bad by today's standards. I don't think we should shy away from this. I think it's worth talking about, going straight at it. Some of these stories may say more 
about how a particular person understood God rather than about who God actually is. So, for example, there's a story of a man in Judges 11. His name is Jephthah, and he rallies Israel together to fight the Ammonites. At one point, the scripture says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he made a vow that if he defeated the Ammonites, he would sacrifice as a burnt offering whoever comes out of his house to greet him. Well, guess what? He wins the battle, and the first thing out of his house is his only child, his daughter, and he sacrifices her. Do any of us think that that was a holy vow that he made? Does anyone think he did the right thing? God, God abhors human sacrifice. It's all over the scripture. So this story is not meant to instruct us. It says far more about that man than it does about God. I think this is a struggle we can have, even with a story that's far more famous, like the parting of the Red Sea. What does faith really mean when we read a scripture like this? Is it to accept it exactly as we hear it? Is it to try and find science to support what happened? Or is real faith even deeper than this? Is real faith about believing there is a way forward even when there is no obvious path in front of us. I think this really is about trusting Jesus, even when things aren't going our way. Trusting that God loves us and calls us to obedience, no matter what is happening in the world around us. There was a young man, just 35, who had moved to southern Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina hit. It was a serious disaster, and what he saw led him to do research on traumatic situations and how people experience what he called spiritual surrender. Then he himself was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. He kept asking his doctor how things looked and if he was going to live or not. The doctor was honest, it doesn't look good but it's too early to tell. Just live as though this is it. You have no more time. And then he was taking the trash out one day while it was raining, and just the cold rain hitting him was hurting him. He said it felt like tiny razor blades cutting him because of the chemotherapy he had undergone. And as he was coming back inside, wondering if God even heard his prayers for healing, he had a moment. It was total spiritual surrender. He dropped to his knees and prayed to God, not for his own healing, but that God would take care of his wife and his children. This life was no longer about his own healing, his own fulfillment, but about others. He was surrendered in obedience to accept whatever God had for him, and only then could he turn his full focus to something, giving up oneself for the benefit of the world. And when I hear a story like that, there is only one person I think of, Jesus giving his life for the world. He set an example so that we might follow 
after him. If we are going to interpret the stories of the Bible well and figure out what they really mean, the path it leads us to has got to ultimately be Jesus, or we've missed the whole point. Jesus unlocks the deeper meaning of the scriptures. Moses' faith and the Israelites going in a direction that seems ludicrous is the step of faith that leads us back to Jesus. Following Jesus is not easy. It's not even popular these days either. It doesn't mean you'll get that miraculous healing that you're hoping for. Following Jesus will absolutely lead us to a less traveled path in the wood. The only question that remains is, will you go down that ludicrous path? Will you try and cross that muddy Red Sea? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ, even if it's faith that leads to the cross? Not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. I pray you will. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.